Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking with Jen Ag, the game-changing Toronto restaurateur behind the Black Hoof and Rum Corner, and the author of the memoir, I Hear She's a Real Bitch. Ag is known for her inventive, meat-centered menus and lively environments, and also for her outspoken assessments of the restaurant scene, available to you on her wonderful Twitter feed, at the Black Hoof. Today, we speak about building a team you trust, the careful art of creating atmosphere, and navigating the masculinity of the restaurant business. Hi, Jen. Hello. I want to start with your career. Briefly, tell our listeners what you are in charge of. Well, not the world yet, um, (laughs) but so far, it's just a few restaurants, all Toronto-based. I did venture out of Toronto once, and it was very challenging. The Black Hoof is the flagship that's closing. By the time this airs, it'll be closed. Uh, We did 10 years, and oh my God, I have the perfect answer for why we're closing, because I've had to answer that question 72,000 times now. And (laughs) You want to tell us why you're closing? (laughs) Yeah. So I, it's a combination of things. For one thing, I I really always wanted to take the hoof 10 years. Like it, to me, feels like when you're a corner-turning restaurant and you do something in your industry, in any industry, this can apply, that actually, you know, shifts the culture or pushes things to new directions, which is, you know, inarguably what The Hoof did, then you have to understand that there are going to be other corners along the horizon that will need to be turned. And I feel like at at this point, you know, what else do we have to say about sweetbreads and heart? We've kind of said it all. And I want to, you know, I want to pick my own death. I don't want to limp across a finish line and be told it's time to leave the party. I've had too much to drink, you know? Right. It's knowing when to leave the room. That's right. Out on a high note. And you're working on a restaurant launch right now too, right? Literally right now. Like I was just knee deep in primer about 17 minutes ago when I jumped on my bike and ran to the studio, which is very conveniently located not too far. But yeah, that's um, there's just a lot. It feels like a lot of spinning plates, no pun intended. Talk us through a restaurant launch. I mean, knee-deep in primer, so you're like literally <laughs> painting the restaurant. Tell us. I want to get a little bit of the texture of the day-to-day. So so what's the restaurant you're launching? What's the conceit so, and what does a day of setting up a restaurant to launch look like? Every story is different. Like, for example, opening Agricole in Montreal was really special in that there, you know, the unions will sit outside and watch you to make sure you're not painting your own restaurant, which I think, frankly, is taking it a little far. I would like to paint my own restaurant, um, but I couldn't. And if I did, we would get a ticket. So it was really – that was an intense, like, thing to go through and realize I couldn't, you know, put my hands on it the way I wanted to. Grey Gardens was such an overwhelmingly large project that I really – like, I really couldn't do a lot of the finishings. And I was back and forth between Montreal, so that was just sort of a time thing. But this one, this is just a dream. So this is the Swan. We're calling it Le Swan. That's our slight twist. It's French diner is the concept, which it's Mm -hmm. kind of a miracle to me that this hasn't been done to death because it actually seems like these ideas were meant to have a long and happy life together. The French idea would be, say, steak frites or the sort of Parisian rotisserie chicken where the chicken fat drips down on the potatoes. And mm-hmm. on the other side of the menu, the diner side, you'd have meatloaf and mashed potatoes echoing the meat and potato of the steak frites, or say a hot chicken sandwich, which is this sort of French-Canadian classic, like white bread, hot chicken gravy, and peas that is delicious. So it's the connective tissue is that they are both comfort foods. So even though, say, some of the menu might cost a little bit more, might be a little bit more refined in terms of French food, 
they have a relationship. And so it makes perfect sense to me that these ideas would coexist. But the other great thing about this space is that it's already licensed. So we're going into this this dream space. I've I've really been thinking about this space my entire career. Like I used to eat at the Swan with my parents and with my friends. It was kind of the only cool restaurant for a long time, maybe with a couple of exceptions. It opened in 98 and had a 17-year run. And for a lot of that time, it was a very good restaurant. It definitely did not stay at the top of its game throughout its run. And then it's, it's had two other incarnations that just haven't quite hit properly. So I, it just fell in my lap. And when you get to go to a space that you've always been dreaming about, it's really easy to design it because, you know, I've spent hours and hours in there looking at things, thinking about how I would do them. So the design just really came together very quickly. And we're not we're not changing. I mean, you're, you're not from Toronto, so you don't know like the iconic booths and the way, but it's, it's a sort of a diner feel. There's a low counter. There's this beautiful back bar woodwork. There's all of these booths. We're not changing any of that. We're just kind of freshening it up. We're new color scheme. All the surfaces are going to be different, but it's going to, you're going to walk in and you're going to see the same bones. So it's just, it's been so fun. And I, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot um, on every job I've ever done, but this one, I'm really applying those skills and, you know, plastering and painting and all the sort of finishing and fun work is, is what I like to get into. And it's not even really a money thing. It's like, I want to be there putting my hands in it. And I want my partners to be doing that too, because then it really feels like it's yours, you know? That's so interesting. I mean, I think one of the challenges of taking on a leadership role or running things that get bigger and bigger is the question of what exactly you delegate to other people and trust them with and let them work with and what things you still want to touch yourself and think about yourself is one of the big ones, or at least one of the big ones I've encountered. And it's interesting to hear. So the so it's the touches on the room. It's the actual physicality of the engagement with the space that's part of what you're hoping to Yeah, I mean a lot of with. a lot of things I want to stay engaged with. I mean for me that was one of the hardest lessons and the best lessons of my career was finding people uh, five or six years ago that I trusted enough that they could, I needed to let go. Like I couldn't keep going at the pace I was going. I was working full services every single day and trying to like build this little mini empire. It was, and, you know, eventually trying to write a book. It was just too much stuff. So when I found Jake and David, who are managers slash vice president slash partners slash future partners, all these wonderful things, they're better than me at many things. And I recognized that. So it was really easy to put them in charge of the things that they're they're very skilled at, and then the moment I started to let go of the of the ropes, you know, it I can't describe that feeling of you know finding your people and you just you all of a sudden you're collaborating and you're trying to build something together and they get it and they understand the vision and they have visions of their own and I don't know it's a really incredibly beautiful thing that takes something that I think requires a lot of single mindedness and like splits that through a crystal. Finding your people is a great phrase for it. How have you changed your approach to hiring over time? How did you find your people? It's funny. I was just thinking about this in in a different context the other day about how we change friends throughout our life. And sometimes women aren't allowed to do that and are questioned about that. And that's not really what you asked me. But in terms of finding your people, first of all, I think women and and men mature at different rates. And I think women kind of start to land in their maturity depending on maybe whether they have kids or not, that might have something to do with it. I don't have kids, but I feel like I started to really become who I am in my early to mid-30s. 
And only now in my early 40s do I really, and maybe that just keeps evolving, you know, you keep maturing. And, and for men, I think it's a little bit later. But I think I needed to be that fully formed version of myself, maybe less volatile, more thoughtful, a little more thinking before acting, that kind of thing. And and then they, I don't know, they just sort of appeared before me. I don't, I th- and I think you need to, you need to trust your instincts too. Like I, sometimes you, you end up bringing people on out of desperation. Like you just need someone so mm-hmm. badly that you just need a heartbeat, you know, and that's some, sometimes that works out wonderfully and, and it often doesn't. When you start to find the people that you think you can build something with, you just have to hold on tight so the people that you found that you want to build something with, did you know immediately or did you figure it out over time that they would be people who could who could share the vision? Yeah, fairly immediately. Like I, I'm pretty Im- impulsive and I think it was just one of those things where I saw their talent right away and mm-hmm. was like, okay, th- I, whatever I need to do to keep these people happy and in this company and around me, this is like, this is it. This is how we're going to make something even better because, you know, that's what you need. You need people. I can't do every single job in every single restaurant. And you you need somebody who can put that time in and actually make sure that everybody's doing their jobs properly. Like it's a very hierarchical system, restaurants and on all offices, like everything's like that. There needs mm-hmm. to be leadership. And it's really an interesting thing as, you know, our, my politics might not sit quite in that same thronish chair. But if you don't have somebody steering the ship, everything goes to shit. You have an unusual background in some ways as a ship steerer. <laughs> you know, a lot of the people that we think of as as prominent restaurateurs and in, in various great capitals of the world are chefs, right? Are, are sort of chefs who have built their excellent cooking into restaurant empires. Certainly I can think of a thousand examples in New York or at least a, a solid couple of handfuls. And you came to it differently. So tell, tell me a little bit about how you entered the field. Like would teenage you be surprised by where you've landed or be like, yep, that's about what I would have thought. Well, additionally to them being chefs, they're also steering with their dicks. So that is another important (laughs) distinction to make about how the restaurant business is run. Wait, what do you mean by that? Well, they're dudes. Well, right. But (laughs) but what does it mean to steer a restaurant with your dick? (laughs) I was just being kind of a dick. But I think what it means (laughs) is to do it in a way that is uh, extremely swaggery, not that I, you know, am incapable of having a little swagger. You're not without swagger. I know. This is why I'm choosing my words carefully. They do it in a way where the importance of the restaurant comes above all else. And and it's not, you know, it's not, we're not doing life-saving surgery here. We're, We're serving food to people. But to put this sense of urgency and importance on it, and of course, you know, you do need some urgency to get 150 covers out. But at the cost of the happiness and the comfort of your staff. That's what I mean. So at mm-hmm. the end of the day, when, you're, when your cooks are feeling like they've just gone through the trenches, but it wasn't any fun and it was, you know, abusive or it was – this is this such a rampant thing in the restaurant business. It's not everywhere and it's – I also really understand how it happens because clearing a, clearing a board of tickets is quite a high in a kitchen – it's, you know, it feels really good to get to the end of that. And so there's this like really quick bonding that happens. But sometimes 
sometimes chefs take advantage of that. I don't even know that they know that they're doing that or they think that they're doing that. It's more just closing the circle on this cycle of abuse. They came up through abusive chefs that sort of the European tradition of like not just hierarchy but dictatorship and abuse. And then when they get to the top of that ladder, that's almost their reward is like now they can dish it out. And that's definitely a thing. That happens. I mean, you've spoken prominently about the experiences that women have in in restaurant kitchens and restaurants generally, and we'll we'll circle back around to that later on in the conversation. Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about just the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of how how you found yourself as a woman (sighs) running restaurants. So when you were a, a child or a teen, was the restaurant industry on your horizon? Did you envision yourself being in charge of things? How, how did you think about your future? The first one, I would say not necessarily. The second one, absolutely. I, I, didn't, I was never somebody with a five-year plan. I was never like, well, this is what I have to do to achieve this, and then this will happen again. It's just show me a cliff, I'll jump off it. And restaurants were really appealing because I have kind of a short attention span in some ways, and everything in the re- Every day is the same but different. So there's um, all of this stuff that you have to learn, all these skills that you have to learn, but what you're actually learning is psychology in the front of house mm-hmm. and how to and how to read somebody and how to give them a really awesome experience without for me it was without compromising who who I was and trying to find that balance it wasn't about like putting on a different shirt for every table it was about how can i stretch my personality in certain ways with people and that was always that sounds so egocentric but really that that's what it was and that was what was fascinating about it to me that i could you know, wear all these different hats and be all these different, slightly different versions of myself. But then I also like, I'm really competitive and I got really good at bartending. And because I wanted, I wanted to be the best at it. And I would, you know, take trips to New York and see what was happening there and realize how, how far behind Toronto was um, in terms of just creativity and pushing forward what was happening in drinks. And yeah, I mean, I ended up, I ended up working, working in bars in Toronto and eventually opening a bar with my ex-husband. And that was great. I mean, it was a really nice introduction to business ownership, but it was also like, I was in my twenties. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Like it was more like making a living. You know, we weren't, we worked all the time. There was not a whole lot of money saved. The The money that we'd make would run the business. And then we sort of make spending money in tips. And that's, that's not exactly how you should be running a restaurant, but it was, it was fun and it worked. And it gave me that kind of baseline for understanding that I was really into this business and when that, when everything sort of came to a head and my marriage broke up and the restaurant or the bar was over, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had, I sort of had these dreams of opening a restaurant and I just thought, you know, yeah, I haven't really worked in restaurants that are high end, but I can definitely do this. And, and just the way everything landed, it's sort of a complicated story about real estate, but eventually I was able to lease back the space where my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, had had a business, had to sell the building. And the sort of stipulation to our acquaintances who were buying the building was that they would lease me back the space. And that's the story of the hoof. All great restaurant stories are actually real estate stories. (laughs) I think they probably are. Something that I think might be true. So what were the things, I mean, you talked about the black hoof turning a corner. Um, When you were sorting out your vision for that initial restaurant, what were the things that you wanted to achieve? Well, the thing the thing that I thought was interesting that was happening in the world was charcuterie. And it wasn't 
you know, people weren't making their own charcuterie really in North America that much. I'm not saying it never was happening. Like there was, I'm sure, some experimentation with it, but it wasn't the ubiquitous thing where, you know how some things are trends and then after a while they just sort of settle into like, this is just a thing that you see at restaurants. And right now Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, house bread and charcuterie are just things that have like settled into their rightful place as part of a restaurant's experience. But 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. And people were not eating the way, you know, St. John was a big corner turning restaurant in London. So they were doing nose to tail and they were, you know, cooking sweetbreads and brain for people and, and all of these sort of odd bits. And that was not, that had not fully made its way across the pond. And, and it, I would say the interesting thing to me is that I think it took longer for that to happen in New York. Like you still can't eat horse in New York, right? Like you're still. I haven't tried, but I don't think you word for I, it. I'm pretty sure. And or it's not it's not common. And I think the dining audience there for a long time was a little bit conservative, which is really interesting because you think about New York as being the leader in terms of those things. And I think in, in that aspect, it really wasn't. So the inspiration was really like a realm where there weren't other players and you felt like there would be room to do something noteworthy because there was an absence of competition, basically. Right? I mean, I don't think I was thinking about it like that. But yeah, like I think fundamentally that's what it comes down to is nobody's doing this. This is a really cool thing, making your own charcuterie. I had to find somebody that knew how to do that. And I mean, that, that story is sort of the legendary Craigslist ad story. And then a legendary falling out story. But then you have to buy my book if you want to know all the dirty details of that. ABC. <laughs> AB. What is the work? Can I just get the wording of the Craigslist ad? Do you remember what you said? Oh, fuck. I don't know. It's I, I have the email somewhere. I have to dig it up. But just very basic, like must be able to um, maintain and create a charcuterie room. I don't know. Something like that. And I ideally has some serious garbanger skills. Like I didn't really even – I didn't think I was looking for like a chef. Like I thought we were going to make charcuterie and some light things and do drinks. And then, you know, all credit due to my ex-partner um, in, in that he brought a lot of creativity to the food. And it was that combination – at that time, no no chefs thought atmosphere and vibe and drinks were important. They didn't give a shit. They wanted to put the lights up so you could see their beautiful, artful plates. And they didn't care about anything outside of what was on that plate. And I think really that was the magic of the hoof, was that there was this baseline of, yeah, we're going to do this cool, interesting food, and it's going to be delicious, and it's going to be different. But we're going to do it in a room which is bustling which is playing a My Bloody Valentine B-side, which is, you know, full of servers wearing jeans and Converse, but also they're really, really good at their jobs, except they're not stuffy and they're not doing that arm behind their back thing. They're being casual, but they're like getting you everything you need. And the lights are really low and it feels really fucking fun and vibrant. And I mean, that to me was why it clicked for people, was all of those things. So I'm curious to hear what the specific levers are that you pull in spaces to create that vibe and, and sense of vibrancy. But was there like a founding vision? Like, do you have a Proust's Madeline of of the perfect room or the or the good time had that you're trying to conjure when you build a new space? Yes. I mean, for me, it's just about what I like in that moment. Like, it's really, again, just what do I want? I don't want to give people what I think they want because there's already – you know, a milestones 
uh, that's I don't know if that you have that in America, but it's like a chain, a Canadian chain restaurant. Like, there's already restaurants. No offense to Milestones, what they do, they do well. But there's already restaurants that are there to give to be the house of yes, to give people what they think people want. I wanted to create something that I wanted, and I didn't see it anywhere. And I wanted to be in this, for lack of a better word, this sort of cool room that like felt different and and not stuffy. Like I hated these padded tablecloths and these temples of haute cuisine. Like that's not fun. I still don't find it fun. Like I appreciate it, but my husband will get very upset with me if I drag him to any of those places and you know has to sit down for four hours and and sort of I don't know worship little plates every. 12 minutes. I, it's not fun. And I, and I didn't find it fun and I don't find it fun. So that was it for me, is trying to make something really, really fun. And what's been interesting over my career is what that means as I age and as I open new restaurants. How does a cool, fun room change when you're making a restaurant now versus 10 years ago? Well, I have a little more money. So that is a fun thing. I mean, when I made the Huff, Roland basically took everything. This is, I love when people call me Roland my sugar daddy on Reddit or whatever, because that's really not what happened. But I mean. Roland is your husband. He's my husband, yes. He sold his he sold the building that he had owned with his ex-wife and every cent that he made from that um after you know putting something somewhere or whatever things we needed to do he invested in this crazy idea that I had I was not a restaurateur I I but I was positive that I was going to open like the best restaurant the city had ever seen and I was like being dumb enough to say those words out loud and he was just like, okay, honey, okay, sure, sure. But I think, I don't know exactly why he trusted me because, you know, we don't, we'd only known each other for a couple of years at that point, but he really, he believed in my enthusiasm. And it was a good gamble because from that initial investment, we've managed to basically finance, with the exception of Agricole, um, because we had partners, but we basically managed to finance every single restaurant with our own money. And we've never taken a cent from investors. And that is highly unusual in the restaurant business. I, I don't want, you know, it might be kind of dumb to like lose my own money instead of someone else's or to take that risk rather of losing your own money instead of someone else's. But I never wanted to have to answer to someone. So as I as I went through, say, I guess it was The Hoof and then Cocktail Bar and then Raw Bar, there's all these, all of these restaurants sort of associated with The Hoof. And eventually we, we've landed on the, the trifecta of the Black Hoof, Rum Corner, which is kind of a restaurant made in my husband's honor as a Haitian man. And he is very happy there and loves it there and kind of he sets the vibe of the room and he's just somehow the most charming, welcoming person, even though he's not in hospitality and hates when people think he is because he's an artist. But he he sort of he has his spot. Everyone knows that's his spot. No one can sit in his corner stool and he DJs. Sometimes he uses a reel to reel and he's just a very I don't know. It's hard to explain if you haven't seen it. And it just he's just amazing. And he just is the heart of that place. And then there's Cocktail Bar right across the street. So there's this triangle of restaurants that for was a, was enough for a while. But with, with something like Grey Gardens, I had some more money to invest. I had better taste in wine. I wanted a different experience for myself. and But I still wanted it to be cool. I just wanted it to be a kind of place that I wanted to go to that was like, if I were in charge of a fine dining restaurant, what would that look like? So it is kind of, I mean, technically, I suppose you could call it a fine dining restaurant, but it doesn't feel like that. It's just got this, again, it's like this vibrant energy. And a lot of that has to do with with music and lighting. 
And it's so important, and I cannot beat that drum enough. So how specifically is the lighting different at a Gen Ag fine dining joint than at a a, a more casual joint? Well, there's no LED or fluorescent bulbs in the building, first of all, because why would you do that? It's incandescent all the way, with the exception of a couple of some of the newer LEDs can give like an an orange glow if you... If for a very specific thing, they're okay. But really, it's it's all about that warm incandescent light that isn't too yellow, that isn't too orange. It's just inimitable. You cannot recreate it with. Do you have to stockpile those? They're they're beginning to be. I know. To get do you think I don't have a giant room full of light bulbs? <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> the attention to detail is so extensive. You're stuck. You've got. A, a, I'm serious. A, I do. It's like, um, and also, you're always going to be. I think you're always going to be able to buy decorative incandescents like the chandelier bulbs I don't think they're going to take away those from us because that would be cruel that's the first thing everything on dimmers is the second thing obviously I think that sort of should go without saying and then you can't so you can't set the light and then walk away at 6 p.m or 5 30 or 5 whenever you open you can't just be like oh this is the lighting for the entire night because if you have the lights at like 10 p.m no sun level there's not enough it looks gray, sort of. I don't know how to explain it, but you have to have like much brighter lights when you first open, and then you just dim them with the setting sun. It's really very simple, but if you're doing it properly, you should be dimming the lights more than 10 times over the course of like an hour, however long it takes for the sun to set. You need to do it in tiny little increments. No one should ever feel it. When you do a little dim, nobody should look up and go, oh, what happened there? They shouldn't feel it. It should be so tiny. And the music is kind of the opposite of that. So as you start out, Say at 5.30, you you might have at Grey Gardens something a little lighter, a little prettier, not super loud. But then as the room becomes more boisterous, you can sort of control that energy. We really like to play hard ballads there. What I mean by a hard ballad is just like, I don't know, something that could be construed as a little bit cheesy, but actually somehow kind of works at a really loud volume in a really cool restaurant. Like it... I don't know I don't know why it works it just does but you also have to balance it with deep cuts so you can't just have like your Shania's and your Celine Dion's um nothing else you have to like balance it with like a weird Depeche Mode ballad B-side which is still pretty mainstream but you know what I mean like you can't just it can't just be all pop songs so that's really important too and I I mean I obsess about this stuff I spend hours and hours and hours making playlists and then I listen to them through a service and then adjust them and then figure out which nights, you know, maybe a Friday night playlist isn't the same as a Saturday night playlist because it's a slightly different crowd and you need to you need to kind of play to the room as well. Do you repeat playlists at your restaurants? I've had the experience of eating at a restaurant and being like, oh, my God, this music is so cool. Like I remember the first time I ate at the original Terezi restaurant in New York. Right. The whole playlist was the original soul songs from which all the great hip-hop samples of the 80s and 90s had been drawn. So the whole list felt, I mean, I may not be remembering this exactly right, but it felt like this great little oral set of discoveries of like, oh, that's what that's from. That's what you, <laughs> like you were kind of crate diving. But then that was the playlist like all the time, which was great. It was still a really great playlist. Do you ever think about the repeat diner? Of course. But I mean, you know, we we have at Grey Gardens right now, I think around 37 playlists ranging from three or four hours to six or eight hours. So you'd have to be coming there a lot. Like we don't have, we don't, it's not like Monday night we play this, you know, it's, yeah, you'd have to be coming there a lot to hear 
the same songs in the same order. And I actually, every once in a while, I do a little shuffling around just for that reason. But yeah, it's definitely, you have to have more than 30 for it to work. And that thing when you're sitting in a restaurant and you're having a conversation and maybe you're having an early drink or something and maybe it's professional and then suddenly the lights go like, whomp, and you it immediately feels like you're on a date and it's a little awkward. That's a mistake. In Huge a, mistake. In running a room. Also, re- washroom lighting. So the, the, another thing you don't want is someone going to the washroom and being blasted with light and then coming back to the dining room and they're like, their pupils are all dilated and like everything looks, you kind of have to have the same level of light throughout. And you can have a little, you know, you can have it a little brighter in the washroom so people can sort of see themselves. But I don't think you need to have these like high wattage, 100 watt bulbs in the washrooms, which a lot of places do. It has just occurred to me that you are the person I've been waiting to ask this question to for a decade. Restaurant washroom sinks. For some reason, so often it seems that someone has chosen a sink for aesthetic rather than functional purposes, and you end up with a sink that's striking and unusual and makes you feel like you're in a cool place where people didn't just get the normal thing from Sears. And then you turn it on and the water like sprays <laughs> sideways or the the faucet's like 20 feet above the bowl and they're splashing everywhere. Like, do you think about your restaurant sinks and what do you of think? Of course. About your Are you sinks? kidding? It's practically all I'm thinking about right now. You know, I, another thing I really hate is that plumbing, you know, where the, the tap is like open on top. So the water looks like it's coming as a waterfall. It is. Oh, yeah. I hate that so much. No, I really, 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 really think about this stuff. I, I use wallpaper in my washroom, so I think about splash factor. I mean, we protect it, but, like, you don't want wallpaper getting too wet. Um, I think about the distance of the tap over the back of a sink, and that was something I learned at my house once where we, where they got it wrong. I'm like, oh, this is really annoying. And it's just like, yes, these are all definitely things that I think about. All right. So it is clear that Gen Ag, commanding a room, figuring out how to make it right, spending, you know, not investor money, spending your own money to make the room right. It is clear the set of thought and work that goes into that. I'm curious how, as someone who's running a group of people now thinking about this, how do you sort of share that authority or give people the room to make decisions when you're <sighs> not there? How do you not become a bottleneck It's so hard. It's so hard. Wait, what's a bottleneck of taste? That is a great three words. I don't know. I just I just invented <laughs> it. But, you know, so it sounds like your taste is deeply animating these places, right? What what's, what feels like the right playlist to you? What's the right light bulb to get? Yeah. What's the, I read an interview with you once where you talked about the appropriate ice, the appropriate kind of ice for a cocktail. Never heard of this ice. Cold freeze ice or something like that. Anyway, it's clear that you have cold draft, this, right? Cold draft, cold draft. Great attention to detail. You can't teach that. Unfortunately. Um, right. So y- but also, if you have to sign off on every single decision, right, like what's it, what, which little ceramic bowl does the salt go in? Or is it just crazy to even think that salt could go in a ceramic bowl? No, I do sign off on every decision. So how do you make that not slow everything down? Because I I I just do things really quickly and I don't hem and haw. <laughs> that's, re- that's, really, that's really, really true. A lot of times Jake and I or David and I will be going back and forth on, on detail and I could see how somebody would be like, I don't know. We just, uh, maybe we just, let's just wait a couple days and let's really decide. No, it's a go, go for it. Like we were deciding on these plates, for example, at Swan uh, and they have a five to six week lead time and we are opening September 12th. So that is, we don't have time to make a slow decision. We already knew that these plates were the right choice because we wanted to put our logo on them. And I've seen so many restaurants logo their plates up, but they do it the wrong way. They do like a painted on logo. And then after two months going through a restaurant dishwasher, it looks like shit. So why would I think about that? You know, why would I try it? Like at a certain point, yes, it's a little bit expensive, but I'm not going to try 
that hard to like dig up another place when I have a five to six week lead time, I'm going to say, this is worth it. Let's go for it. And if I could have saved $400 by by like putting two people against each other, that wasn't worth it to me to risk losing three days. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So those are the those are the kind of decisions where you just you have to decide quickly, uh, and you learn. I don't I don't know that it's a learned skill. Like for I think maybe people can learn how to do that, but I think it's a natural innate innate thing for me is that I just like I really do trust my my gut instinct, and you know it doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes, but hopefully you learn from them. <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't slow down my decision making, and that's the way that. I can have that kind of micro control, which maybe, you know, I shouldn't have sometimes. And of course, like I can't be in every restaurant room in every moment, but I go to my restaurants a lot. And everybody that's running those rooms knows that if I walk in and the lighting's off, it's not going to be awesome. I'm not going to be a a jerk to them, but I'm going to say something and I'm going to say it again the next time. And then the third time I have to say it, I'm like, this has to stop. You need to get this. You need to pay attention. And I think this is so important, this part of this conversation, how to get the best out of people, because ultimately everyone hates their boss, right? Can we agree this is, I mean, come on. (laughs) No, everybody hates their boss a little. You kind of have to find a way to walk a line where, you know, they respect you and they want to work for you and they want to learn from you and they they like you enough. You know, we all work together closely in, in a restaurant. I would imagine that's sort of similar at your organization, that we have to sort of get along and like each other. But ultimately, there's a way that I can talk to them, and I'm not trying to hurt them or make them feel bad or be abusive or any of those things, but there's a way. And it's – I had this conversation with one of my my key staff recently where I said, how do I know the difference? You know, how do I know whether <laughs> whether I'm being abusive when – and it's, he's like, well, you're not swearing and you're not yelling, but it's crushing when you're disappointed in me. And, you know, I think that's kind of where... How did that make you feel when you heard it, that? It made me feel like I'm I'm doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> because honestly, I don't... It's not something I, I don't want to make people feel bad. But if there's no consequence, then nobody gets better. You know, if people are just sort of allowed to just kind of figure it out willy-nilly and like just be left to their own devices, very few people are going to set themselves. I mean, I can't do Pilates without somebody poking me and telling me to do it better. Like very few people are going to be able to set a standard for themselves where they actually push themselves to be better. If there's not somebody there saying, I'm sorry, you did that wrong. Let's look at it again. And then the next time being like, look, we already talked about this. There has to be some sort of level. And if they can't reach that level, then they can't work for you. Well, the other thing that I think is so uh, interesting about this question of whether, especially in a taste-driven field like yours, you exercise your authority through being kind of a tyrant diva, the don't don't disrupt. The whoa, artist, whoa, whoa, tyrant! Or, or whether, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just, I'm I'm not describing you. I'm saying you know the the, yes. the culture you described of sort of the the people running the restaurant and and pretending that the stakes are you know immortality and <laughs> and life as opposed to just did everybody have fun at the restaurant tonight? <laughs> totally. That in a funny way. A lot of people think you have to have all the drama and the swearing and the psychodrama of management to really be a creative leader. But in a way, if you take all the rest of it out and you express disappointment and desire for a different result without insulting the person, belittling them, swearing at them, or giving them any frictive excuse to resent the advice, then all they have left is just the, the desired outcome and the disappointment, which is maybe more effective. Uh, That is a perfect way to put it, and I wish I had put it that way. You're exactly right. I want to talk a little bit about how women are faring in 
the world of restaurants these days. You've been an outspoken person on many aspects of that subject, and I want to get to all of those questions. But I want to start just by asking whether you thought about being a woman wanting to open a restaurant when you opened the Black Hoof. Like, were there women that you looked to who had done versions of what you wanted to do that you thought of as role models? I want to connect those two thoughts because we just talked a little bit about an effective management tool. The problem with delivering that while having a vagina is that no matter what your intention is, no matter how, as eloquently as you put it, what that the only thing that's left is the disappointment and hopefully the desire to do better, no matter how careful you are, a lot of people don't want to take orders from a woman. A lot of men don't want to take orders from women, but women as well. And I truly believe, you know, I, I think when I was younger, I could have been better at delivering the criticisms. But I also think that I was pilloried for the way that I did it while men were sort of allowed to to do it times a million. And I think that's a really important thing as women in leadership. That thing that we have to struggle with is, you know, appearing like a bitch when well, you're right. just being a boss. Have you tempered your approach to how you give that feedback? I don't know. Maybe a little bit. I think I'm less micromanagey. I'm definitely aware of like how certain people react to things, and I, I take that into account. Um, whereas I think when we were starting out, I was really just so concerned with, you know, every. I felt like my entire everything was on the line. My whole livelihood was on the line. This is how I ate. It had to be perfect. And I think I've relaxed that slightly. And I think I'm sort of less like nitpicky and micromanagey at people. And I'll, I'll still I'll still say things during service, though. I don't think it's effective to wait. I, I think a lot of people would disagree with me. But I think in the moment, if somebody's making a mistake, that they're going to continue making, like, I don't know, setting a table wrong. Like, you just tell them, like, hey, this is actually how we do it. So please do it this way from now on. And like, why would you wait to let them set 40 more tables, you know? Right. In terms of women that I looked up to, not there weren't that many, really. I mean, Gabrielle Hamilton was one of the only ones, and I really admired her. And that was a disappointment, the way that she... <laughs> What's been disappointing about it? Oh, I mean, just, you know, partnering with Ken Friedman. Like, that's it. We're done. The admiration's over. That disappointment happened at the partnering stage because you had a sense of what his organizations were like or, or has arisen more as, as the reporting has come out? No, I think the reporting was already out when she partnered with him. That was very recent. Oh, right, that was right. only a few weeks right, ago. Right. But I think it sort of solidified oh, okay, this is the, the road you're going to take. All right. And I think at this point, when it's such an obvious thing that women have to fight for right now, very especially and very particularly, and there's this momentum that you know fe- already feels like the air is being let out of it, it just, yeah, it felt like a big loss. I also think it's like, it's nice to have people to look up to, but it's maybe not that great to you know meet your heroes. Right. Maybe having heroes isn't that great. Would you say that it's better for women entering the restaurant profession now than it was when you were starting out? I don't know the stats on this, so I don't want to I don't want to make myself, you know, statistically look dumb, but there's not that many women in leadership in the restaurant business still. That is there's lots of servers, there's lots of bartenders, there's lots of bar manager, managers, but there's just not that many women in leadership and it's hard. The pool is smaller. I mean, I think it's better in the sense that Fear is always going to be a greater motivator than benevolence. So if people are afraid of being called out as assholes or or worse, as being called out as sexual predators, they're maybe going to examine their behavior, put a pause on their behavior, maybe stop their behavior because 
they don't want to lose everything. So in that sense, I feel like it has to be getting better. But, you know, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Right. And as you say, if the wind is coming out of that movement, some of that pressure may feel as though it's it's dying down. Don't you feel like it is? Am I wrong to start feeling like it is? Mm, I, I think the question is whether it was a, a, a gust of wind or a set of waves breaking on the shore. And I feel like we might be in a between wave moment, but I think there will be more coming. In restaurant kitchens, I mean, are there things you have done in the kitchens you run to eliminate some of the bullying and sexist culture that has gotten so much attention over the last year? A lot of it's gatekeeping. Really, a lot of it is if somebody seems like a bullish dick, don't hire them. Don't let them come in and infect your space. I mean, it's hard It's hard in some ways. I mean, I don't always run the kitchens or the hiring. I definitely, you know, could have a final say on somebody or if, um, if somebody was doing something that was no good, you know, I would feel very comfortable being like, okay, this person has to go. It's clear and obvious. It's a really challenging thing. There's a cook shortage. Constantly, it feels like there's a cook shortage, certainly a talented cook shortage, whether that's because there are less people in the industry because it's really hard and it's hard to make money as a cook. It's it's hard to just make a living as a cook. It's really, really hard. <laughs> the, the irony of being, you know, really put out by cooks not making enough money out of one side of their mouth and then the pasta is how much out of the other side of their mouths. You know, like you, food costs money. There is like a whole lot of things that go into making that ravioli. So maybe the ingredients don't cost that much, but the time and the effort and building the kitchen and the candles that you're like glowing over, all of this stuff costs money and people really don't, a lot of people really don't seem to understand that. They seem to think that, well, it costs this much at the supermarket. Like, how how much do you think we should be marking it up by? Like, of course we have to mark it up. So that's already a problem is the economies of it are terrible or the economy of it is terrible. But then, you know, you have really long days for cooks. I mean, a 12-hour day is a good day for a cook. And that's, you know, that's maybe not super appealing to young people right now. But let's say you do, you know, find those magic people the way that you get them to be the way that you want them to be is by setting that tone. And if you if you hear something that's like a racist joke or a homophobic joke or, you know, any of these awful things that you sometimes hear in kitchens, you just don't stand for it. And you just let that person know immediately that this is not acceptable. This is not how we talk to each other. And that doesn't mean that there isn't time for levity and fun and swearing and like being gross, but just not at someone's expense. And that's always the line that we try to make very, very clear. Yeah, you can't be watching over people all the time, but I mean, you can let them know that it's embarrassing that they even made a joke like that. Do you make that intervention immediately and publicly? Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't have to. We don't have those issues. But yeah, I absolutely would. The last thing that really happened that was really awful was a server came to me and told me that a cook, this was years ago, had shown her a dick pic, like his dick. <laughs> I was just like, what? And I I don't, I'm not a yeller. I yelled at this guy. I was so angry. And immediately just, you're you're done here. We're, you're gone. Like this is over. I mean, that kind of stuff you just absolutely, I, I was so grateful that she came to me about it because what if she hadn't? Yeah. Like how would I have ever known? It's this weird, embarrassing, awful interaction. Like, yeah, so that stuff's, that stuff's really important to nip in the bud. I know you have to go back to your plaster. You still haven't told me exactly what you're plastering. <laughs> I 
I don't want it. My body hurts. But I would love to conclude with just one piece of advice you would give to a woman entering your profession who wants to run some piece of it someday. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if there is just one piece of advice. You have to find a place where you can exist, first of all. And I think you have to work really fucking hard. You have to be unimpeachable still, which sucks. Thank you so much, Jen Ag, for taking the time to talk with us about women in charge and being a woman in charge. Good luck with La Swan. Thank you. That's our show. Our producer is Jessica Jupiter. We had additional editorial support from Cleo Levin and June Thomas. You can email us at womenincharge at slate.com with comments, feedback, or suggestions for other women we should interview. And please don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, which really helps people discover new things. <laughs> 